It's Wednesday, July 21st, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world-class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from battered Washington. Meet Jack Browndart. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC? Well, it wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Gerald. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what uh, is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. Butter Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Yeah. Here it is. Red Cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taking an early meeting with the Cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dreadset. Well, you get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. Mmm, July, summer of 2010. A good time for Radio Free Oz. You're up on RadioFreeOz.com or something like it. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Our co-host, David Osmond. Hey, Pete, you know, I felt uh, just just when you said that summertime thing, I, I kind of went the Mobius strip of time backward to the end of of an Oz show, and, and that feeling of, of going going home to your summer little cabin, getting drunk. But this is just the beginning of the show, so I, I don't want to give away the end of the show. No, never give uh, it away. Uh-uh. And you're so deep, you with your Mobius strips going in both directions oh, at the yeah. same time. Well, it's time, you know, it's time. So, somebody came out the other day and said there was no such thing as gravity. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That, that's yeah. a weighty statement. Uh, you know, by the way, in Mobius Strip, you can do <laughs> yeah. the Mobius Strip now on national television without uh, the FCC suing you. Is that right? Yeah, it's no longer considered obscene to be naked or smart. Uh, it's where our government, man, they know, they know exactly what the right regulations are. No kidding. Some of the best analysis on the American economy, in fact, some of the best analysis on a lot of the major issues facing us now in this tipping point world, come off the blogs. 
And here's a blog called Baseline Scenario, written by a man named Simon Johnson. And I'm going to read you one of his blog entries. I hate the word blog anyway. It sounds to me like that movie where this thing kind of takes over the village. Well, yeah, blogging is kind of taking over the global village. And then some of the people that respond. So this is not the nattering nabobs of television. This is just actual people. Uh, So Simon Johnson says, without a narrative... How can anyone make sense of the past 18 months? Is there no explanation for why the economy has become such a difficult place for so many people? How do we go from apparent prosperity in 2007 to the deepest recession of the past 50 years? And how are we going to get the jobs back? He says, blaming things on the Republicans in some vague sense, e.g. tax cuts, that also doesn't make much sense to people. If you want to get partisan, you have to connect the dots in a convincing manner. Otherwise, people will rightly tune out. But the issue may be deeper or higher up in the administration. It is entirely possible, based on what we are seeing and hearing now, that members of the political wing of the White House don't really understand what happened, that the big banks blew themselves up, and why they are now so powerless to do anything about it. I mean, after being rescued, the banks fought hard to block effective change, and to some degree— have succeeded. The credit system remains fundamentally damaged and unfixed. This determines expectations for the future in many ways and slows the recovery of jobs. So here comes a blogger's response or addition, okay? And this, here's what it says. It says that in In 1933, Hoover and Roosevelt knew the cause of the crash. It was tax policy leading to wealth concentration. Hoover raised the marginal tax rate to 65%, and Roosevelt raised it further to 90%, where it stayed until the 1960s. This is the marginal rate. If you're earning, like, tons and tons and tons of cash, you pay 90% back to the Commonwealth, okay? That's how it is in most of the European countries, okay? And this held until the 1960s. And this led to a great middle class prosperity, a stable middle class, and American power until through the entire century until Ronald Reagan rode up on his horse and reversed all this with the so-called Tax Reform Act of 1986. Bush further lowered the marginal rate to 25% where it stood in 1929. And this is what the Republicans are fighting for right now. Keep it at 25%. We now have, like Mexico and some other small, or shall we say third world countries or two and a half world countries, wealth concentration and no money for consumer demand in a vicious cycle. And here's what another blogger chimes in. And I think this is good thinking. And and the only way you can get this, I guess, is what I call trolling the woe, going out there and finding out what people feel and think and experience in these most amazing and in many ways difficult times. We must refute the knee-jerk talking points with real, legitimate, straightforward facts, starting with the fact that the new numbers out there today show it is even harder to find a job as job retraction has increased not decreased. Senator Kyle et al. who say the unemployed are merely slackers who are parasites on the arse of the real producers need to be proven to be the liars they are and not by shouting them down, but by using solid evidence of our argument. It's true. We have to get away from all of this partisan bickering and shouting and screaming and, you know, bitch fighting. We've got to get down to real hard facts. The real problem is, is that few people have the capacity to get it and few people are listening. 
Remember in the days of Nazi Germany, Dave, when there was like a block captain called a Gauleiter, like on every block in the neighborhood, the, the person that made sure everybody else was watching everybody else and turning everybody else in. And in Moscow or in, in communist Russia, you had the political commissars. You always had somebody on the block looking, mm-hmm, looking, sneaking. Mm-hmm. Well, there's scary news out no. of Utah. An anonymous group in Utah has leaked the personal info of 1,300 people it says are illegal immigrants. The list was sent to local media and state agencies and included a demand that all persons on it be deported immediately. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the list included 31 social security numbers, the names and dates of birth of 201 children, and the due dates of six pregnant women, almost every surname is Latino. Now, wait a minute. Now, now if they found the social security numbers, yeah. are, are, are they then saying these are fake? Probably, yes. Uh-huh. They probably aren't saying anything at all. They're probably saying these people look like illegals to me. I live on a street in Salt Lake where everybody is white, and I saw this person walking down the street, so they must be illegal. That's part of the brain well, I, yeah, you, I guess you could go around and sort of do a, be a census person and uh, hang out on the street corners where guys are looking for work and where the taqueria truck is, and you could hang out and sort of ask them, you know, uh, whether they're legal or illegal or not. And if they're not, not you put them in this little list and you turn them in anonymously. Yeah, yeah Well, yeah. you know, in, in well, Germany, Only in Utah. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's, about, it's, yeah. about, it's about deporting or, or doing away with the not me. In Germany, mm-hmm. the not me was the Jew. In, in, in Russia, the not me was the person who was uh, out of touch with history, the anti-Bolshevik, the reactionary, the, uh, you know, the person trying to st- uh, destroy the system, the wrecker. Right yeah. Now yeah. it's basically the Latino. That's all you got to be is kind of brown and not you know not be driving around in a million dollar car and and you're suspect. Well, what's scary is where all this personal information might have come from. And I suppose since this uh, this letter was sent to all kinds of news media, it went to NPR, and I mean nobody is going to sit down and publish this stuff or read these these things in the first place. <laughs> you can't. Because uh, it's all personal information. Nobody should – it shouldn't be out there for anyone to see. The due dates of six pregnant women. What do they want to do with those mm. six pregnant women? Get them across the border before they have their anchor babies? Sure, because otherwise, you know, you have to pay all these people well as welfare. And my gosh, there's – excuse me. I mean, the, the, the payments are going up and up and up. And my household insurance is costing me. More tales of America as the world's policeman. And as Gilbert and Sullivan has told us, a policeman's law is not an happy one. Pressure has been on the Yemeni government, says CNN, to fight a growing al-Qaeda element, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which grabbed the attention of the West with the Christmas Day attempted bombing of a Northwest Airlines transatlantic flight as it landed in Detroit. There's got to be some reason for landing in Detroit. The suspect, Farouk Abdul Mutalab, who has pleaded not guilty to six federal terrorism charges, was reportedly trained and armed in Yemen. There is also increasing scrutiny of America's growing involvement. We're there and we're more than advisors. We handpicked the country's top fighters, said General Yawa Mohammed Abdullah As-Saleh. By the time they say his name, the guys are inside the compound. President Salah's nephew, who runs the elite counterterrorism unit, said that this is true. America is taking a further and deeper commitment to Yemeni security. 
But Al-Qaeda is also stepping up its training in Yemen. (laughs) You get one, you get the other. Some counterterrorism experts warn that an influx of foreign fighters from the insurgencies in Afghanistan and Iraq is making the terrorist presence in Yemen much more resilient. Why am I not surprised? We're, we're training terrorists. We may not be running the camps, but we're creating the atmosphere that makes it possible for them to be, you know, really excited about the idea of running off to uh, behind God's back and learning how to make improvised explosive devices. What a life. You could become a plumber. No, I'm going to become an exploder. Al-Qaeda is using U.S. and British involvement in Yemen as propaganda to win over the support of locals and discredit the Yemeni government. There is also growing speculation of a more direct role in the fighting by the American military, but U.S. officials maintain they only provide intelligence and training to the Yemenis. In July, Amnesty International released photographs of U.S. cluster bombs uh, dropped on a rural Yemeni village in an anti-Al-Qaeda operation. Scores of women and children were reported to have been killed. This attack took place on December 17th, about a week before the Detroit attempted bombing. So this may have encouraged that man to come and try and bomb us in Detroit, just as all the droning in Pakistan. Uh, so says the guy that tried to bomb us in Times Square. Cluster bombs, mines, they have to be outlawed. Now, this is terror. This is state terror. Most Yemeni officials believe Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula numbers only a few hundred. Remember they told us in Afghanistan, there's only a hundred Al-Qaeda there and we're spending a billion ahead. How much are we going to be spending on these guys in Yemen? There was only a few hundred highly trained fighters living in rural areas where local tribes may provide shelter. Yeah. Yemeni society is not homogenous. There are lots of people who see the Yemeni-U.S. security cooperation as a horrible choice, said Mohammed al-Assadi, a former editor of the Yemen Observer. Others believe this kind of cooperation is acceptable as long as it is based on a win-win deal, which they feel is not the case. Whether the U.S. or U.K. troops are building the capacity of the Yemeni forces or directly are launching the air attacks, this kind of military cooperation is publicly unwelcome. Don't we get it? We're not wanted. We're not doing any good. We're not building any nation. We're just increasing our deficit, both our financial deficit and our moral deficit. For the Yemeni government, any evidence of foreign involvement in its campaign against al-Qaeda risks a backlash, a blowback. This is one of the most conservative of Arab countries where foreigners are often viewed with suspicion. Yeah, I think that's putting it lightly. The Western trainers pay a crucial role in helping confront Al-Qaeda here, but in winning the war, the government risks losing, get ready, the hearts and minds of its people. Oh my, when are we ever going to learn? It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. Well, the gray lady tells us that the housing bust uh, that began among the working class in remote subdivisions and quickly progressed to the suburban middle class is striking the upper class in privileged enclaves like uh, Silicon Valley and the expensive parts of uh, outside of Chicago all over the country. The rich are closing their doors. Whether it is their residence, a second home, or a house bought as an investment, the rich have stopped paying the mortgage at a rate that greatly exceeds the rest of the population. Oh, so the rich are walking on their mortgages to a greater percent than the middle class and those horrible people in the lower middle class who should never have been allowed to buy in the first place. 
More than one in seven homeowners with loans in excess of a million dollars are seriously delinquent. One in seven? That's 14%, Jucko. By contrast, homeowners with less lavish housing are much more likely to keep writing checks to their lender. About one in 12 mortgages below the million dollar mark is delinquent. One in seven for the fatty cats, one in 12 for the more humble members of the Vox Populi. Many of the well-to-do are purposely dumping their financially draining properties just as they would any sour investment. My! The sheriff in Cook County, Illinois, is increasingly in demand with foreclosed owners in the upscale suburbs to the north and west of Chicago, like Wilmette, LaGrange, and Glencoe. The occupants are always gone by the time a deputy gets there, a spokesman said, but just barely. Uh, The sheriff's at the front door, and they're going out the back door. Uh... Uh, It is the same scenario in Los Altos. This is a real ritzy Silicon Valley uh, upscale neighborhood where the medium home price of $1.5 million makes it one of the most exclusive towns in the country. Several houses uh, scheduled for auction were still occupied this week. The people who answered the door were reluctant to explain their circumstances in any detail. You couldn't understand them anyway because the woman was just sobbing and the man was incoherently drunk. At one point uh, where the lender was uh, owed $1.3 million, there was a couch out front wrapped in plastic. A woman said she and her husband had lost their jobs and were moving in with their relatives. At a vacant house with a pool where the lender was seeking $1.27 million, a raft and a water gun lay abandoned on the entryway floor. Ah, my, oh, my, the new American saga, the new American tragedy. Well, mean-spirited pundits, right, have been blaming the middle class and the lower middle class for blowing up the real estate bubble by buying homes they couldn't afford. Now, enter the rich as part of the problem, and they're copping out at a faster rate than their cousins from across the tracks. I guess you don't have to be needy to be greedy. In distant Dungdong province, flowering entrepreneur Chin Fat was thrown into the deepest solitary confinement well for harboring bicameral thoughts. He figured he bought the farm. So he did, because he remembered to dial all the numbers you need to know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, plus 90. C.Fat, 30,000 short, Duck Dong Future Farm Futures, and that's confirmed. And that was the call that bought the farm, that floated the loan, that skinned the cat, that fed the village, that built the dam, that drained the wealth, that lifted the life of Chin Fat. Hello, Charles Fat, Worldwide Dung Dong, Duck Link, and Densong. Global success is in your finger when you dial 1-234-7856 plus 90. Wow, I can't think of any other numbers. Buy the numbers. Only 10 cents a mile from anywhere, no matter what they're calling you. I'm on the phone with Daniel Pinchbeck, author, lecturer, the, has a leading role in a very interesting film, 2012, time for change, and he publishes a very interesting website called realitysandwich.com. I went up there and had a great time, and I recommend you do the same. Glad to have you on Radio Free Oz. How are you doing? Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, here's, you know, when I was reading through your material, which is voluminous, you know, I, there's no way in the world I could, like, even go through the index of what you, you know, what you've spoken about and researched. But the concept of the tipping point, the big change, uh, can 
Would you give me a little background and give our people a little background of what the tipping point means and, and how you came to this understanding? You know, just give us some background on this, okay? Cool. I mean, you know, that, that, that particular name, maybe I use it once or twice. I mean, that's just one way of looking at it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, my argument, uh, I mean, it's a kind of a lot to describe, but uh, I, my first book, Breaking Open the Head, was about shamanism and particularly psychedelic substances mm-hmm. used by tribal people around the world. And uh, I, I grew up as a scientific materialist. I went through a big existential crisis. Uh, I, I, I went to West Africa through tribal initiation. Uh, you know, I, I was working as a journalist, so I wrote about various uh, shamanic uh, explorations. I went down in the Amazon and Ecuador working with ayahuasca, a, wow. a psychedelic drink and a sacrament from the rainforest, and, and uh, visited uh, the Mazatec Indians in Mexico and you know, looked at the suppression of LSD and peyote and mushrooms in the West and all that stuff. And uh, through a number of experiences, through, through, through you know, being sort of initiated in shamanism, I, I had uh, sort of recovered this dimension of, of psychic reality that um, modern society kind of uh, negates and suppresses. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, having, having recovered that for myself, you know, I began to realize that that was you know, something that was really available for everyone and something that, our, that, that you know, we, we, had, we had, you know, kind of just, yeah, turned away from. Uh, I also began to learn that a lot of indigenous cultures have prophecies about the time that we're in. Uh, you know, the Hopi, who are one of the first people on this continent, and now live in Arizona, believe we're in this uh, time between the worlds, between the fourth world and the fifth world. Similarly, a lot of, uh, you know, indigenous uh, cultures, you know, have a share, a similar understanding, and the classical Mayan civilization had developed uh, the most sophisticated form of this knowledge in their calendar system, pointing towards our year 2012 as kind of the hinge point of a shift in the human consciousness and society. So, and then as we approach that point in time, we can see that, um, you know, the ecological cataclysms are, are getting more and more um, pronounced to, to the point where we really are threatening, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of a, of a termination for our species. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, our technology is becoming more powerful. And also through the, the global interconnectedness of the Internet, we're... we're kind of able to mesh back together all these esoteric uh, knowledge systems, and whether it's Kabbalah or Sufism or shamanism or Tibetan tantric Buddhism or whatever. So we're kind of, um, at the one hand, we're, we're threatened by you know, our unconscious projections, and on, on the other hand, we're, we're uh, accessing a uh, you know, more uh, coherent uh, realization of like, the nature of consciousness, the nature of our being, and I think that's that's kind of the tipping point. It, it's this convergence, you know, of uh, you know science and mysticism, uh, technology, and uh, you know the technicians of the sacred. And um, you know, I think part of the threshold we cross is is uh, to uh, you know kind of re-embrace these, these archaic uh, aspects of the human experience uh, in the here and now. In order to do that, I mean, in order to to access the shamanistic experience, in order to use ancient culture, ancient wisdom, a wisdom, non-ordinary reality, this is something that's rather rarefied, rather special. Uh, Do you have any idea on how we might be able to take this perspective, the knowledge from this perspective, and make it available to a larger group of people? Because obviously, if the change is as broad as you think, and I certainly agree with you, we're going to need a lot of people to get re-educated and resensitized to be able to 
to become part of the solution and, and stop being part of the problem. Totally. Well, I mean, you know, whereas, you know, biological evolution, you know, it's quite slow and takes many generations for change to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cultural evolution can happen, you know, extremely quickly. So there can be a kind of, you know, as you said, a tipping point phenomenon where uh, new ideas, a new perspective, a new paradigm for understanding the nature of the world, human nature, you know, at a certain point that can become communicated extremely rapidly on, on a global scale, uh, especially now when, when we've created the infrastructure of global communications where things can go around the world almost instantly. Okay, let me ask you one thing about that, which is you'd mentioned in one of your, your pieces, and you were talking about uh, centers of power and the fact that there are, you know, there are people who have tremendous power over, over us and that they are small cliques of these organizations exist. And uh, you, you said that basically Obama has become as one with this, ty- with this type of group, that Obama really doesn't understand, doesn't get it, or is, is – is not it does not understand what's going on. I'm not trying to paraphrase you. You, you, you talked about the Bilderberg, Bilderberg group and and the fact that uh, he has visited with them. And do you really think that Obama has has given it away? Do you think that there's any hope that he might be the leader that can take us forward through this change? Well, I mean, you know, in your whole languaging of it, I mean, I don't I don't think it's about a leader taking us forward into this change. I think it's about many kind of stepping into a leadership role and, and becoming, becoming leaders in their own communities. I mean, in, in my film, 2012 Time for Change, uh, you can check out a trailer on 2012timeforchange.com. Uh, we interview a Lakota Indian, a Tiakasin ghost horse, and he talks about our, what, he, what he calls the salvation point mentality, which is our tendency to project uh, salvation or leadership or authority onto some other, you know, person or entity or institution. And I, I think what we're seeing right now is, is the collapse of all of the uh, authority structures that, that, you know, people have been kind of naively depending on. And I think that's a great thing because really, you know, people have to find the, uh, the, 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 the courage in themselves to, to, you know, step outside of those old, those old framings. And, you know, Obama, you know, came through, you know, Yale and Harvard law school. He was the head of this. He was the head of that. He, you know, he's a, he's a political animal. And, 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 and the model of, of modern politics requires, you know, tremendous compromise if you're going to succeed within the system as, as it exists. So uh, a lot of his, you know, kind of uh, rhetoric has turned out to be just that, you know, rhetoric which has also been the case with almost all the other politicians that we've seen over the last decades. Excuse me, only because we, we're running out of time and I want to be able to take, take this up with you in our next edition. I'm talking with a man who's really done a tremendous amount of work in this area, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck. And uh, if, if it works with you, Daniel, I'd like to be able to get back with you again soon and continue this conversation. Sure. Okay. Thanks very much for being on Radio Free Oz. My pleasure. My heart is black. Back it's frozen love. Rip out my hair. And the blood flows through. The cleansing sweat. The leaks you more. Drafts down the walls. And we lace the floors. Oh, yeah. 
I talk about some of them old GOPers, the ones that you know still have a nice moral balance, and that they're just, they're conservatives, but you know they're not wingnuts and they're not racists, and they're not totally out to lunch. Well, most of them are now totally out of office, and they're pointing the finger. Too many Republican leaders are acquiescing to a poisonous demagoguery that threatens the party's long-term credibility, says a veteran GOP House member who was defeated in South Carolina's primary last month, according to the AP. 
While not naming names, the 12-year incumbent Representative Bob Inglis suggested in, in an interview that Tea Party favorites, such as former vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin, remember she did run for vice president, she could be president now, oh, where's the Xanax when I need it, and right-wing talk show hosts like Glenn Beck are the culprits. I think culprits is a really, really nice kind of real gentleman way to describe those people. He, Inglis, cited a claim made famous by Palin that the Democratic held Healthcare bill would create death panels to decide whether elderly or sick people should get care. And he says, there were no death panels in the bill. And to encourage that kind of fear is just the lowest form of political leadership. It's not leadership, it's demagoguery, said Inglis, one of three Republican incumbents who have lost their seats in Congress to primary and state party convention challenges this year. Inglis said voters will discover that you're preying on their fears and turn away. Well, we can only hope. I think we have a lot of leaders that are following those television and talk radio personalities and not leading, he said. What it takes to lead is to say, you know, that's just not right. It's a real concern because I think what we're doing is dividing the country into partisan camps that really look a lot like the Shia and the Sunni. It's very difficult to come together to find solutions. Well, Inglis's refusal to join in on the Obama bashing of the, uh, of the far right played a big role in his landslide defeat uh, in June. Leading up to the election, he frequently challenged voters who questioned the president's citizenship or patriotism. At one town hall meeting, he was jeered for saying that Beck, a Fox News channel host, is a divisive fearmonger. Tell the truth, get jeered in South Carolina. In his primary runoff against prosecutor Trey Gowdy, Inglis failed to break 30%, an improbably low result for a sitting incumbent not embroiled in a scandal. Well, according to the Tea Party and the teabaggers, his scandal is that he won't, you know, demand that Obama wear his birth certificate around his neck. Inglis said he was shocked during the health care votes as he watched protesters jeering Representative John Lewis, a Georgia Democrat who was beaten as a, a leading civil rights activist back in the 1960s. Inglis said, uh, I caught up with him at the door and said, John, I guess you've been here before. Inglis, 50, who calls himself a Jack Kemp disciple because he has emphasized outreach to minorities, as the late Republican congressman did, thinks racism is a part of the vitriol directed at President Barack Obama. Inglis says, I love the South. I'm a Southerner, but I can feel it, he said. And Inglis is not alone. Defeated Utah Republican U.S. Senator Bob Bennett, a real conservative, says that Senate Mort Majority Leader Harry Defeated Utah Republican U.S. Senator Bob Bennett, a real conservative, an arch conservative, but still a sane conservative, says that Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid likely will keep his seat and that the GOP may not win hotly contested seats in Colorado or Kentucky either because of Tea Party mischief is aiding the Democrats this election season. Such a gentleman. Mischief. A sedition might be better. He all said also he worries that the GOP has no clear plan to govern if they take control of the Senate this election year. I have heard lefties say, let the Republicans have both houses. After two years, people will see just how bad they are. Yeah, just let Hitler take over the Reichstag after a couple of years. We'll see he has no real idea on how to rule the world. 
Well, Peter, uh, I am anticipating George Tyrebiter's visit this coming weekend. So uh, next week on Oz, uh, we'll have his I- your interview with him, and, and that'll be interesting. I, I know you met a while ago, and I, I'm going to refresh everybody's memories about uh, uh, George. Just read a little bit from uh, my own memoir about him, Adventures with George. Uh, I met him first when I was his uh, newspaper boy. Actually, he lived in my neighborhood, and I delivered the uh, Los Angeles Daily News. But uh, here's where the the little bit from my book starts. I ran into Tirebiter once again when I was working for KPFK Radio in the early 60s when he came into the studios for an interview after his novel Street of Broken Glass appeared from some local press. Because the book's story dealt with the blacklist, our public affairs guy, Fred Haynes, did the interview. Fred was always planning a definitive documentary on the Hollywood 10, just like I was working on the definitive documentary about the California Indians. Well, he asked Tyrebiter what he did to survive during the blacklist. I wrote additional dialogue for Shakespeare, Tyrebiter said, and I'd do it again. Well... I realized that's what he had been doing ever since back in those old bungalow court days. He'd been surviving. Then a few years after that, in 1967, Tirebiter popped up on the L.A. political scene, running for city council in Glendale on the Peace and Freedom ticket. He was around a lot. He had a regular column in the Free Press, seen to schmooze with Tim Leary and Ken Kesey, show up at Zappa concerts, uh, avant-garde art exhibitions, private screenings of Easy Rider and Zabriskie Point and, and Head. You could tell by his groovy love beads that he was on our side. And that's when the whole Fireside Theater met Tyrebiter. Peter Bergman had him on Radio Free Oz as a guest guru one night over KRLA, sometime after the first love-in. And I, I told him, Pete, get George Tyrebiter on the show and ask him about flying saucers. Uh, groovy, said Pete, of course, and, and he did. And we actually wrote an old radio script to do live on that broadcast. It must have been one of the first pieces of group writing that we ever did. Tirebiter mesmerized the Magic Mushroom audience, and especially Peter, with his tales of alien communications kept top secret by the Thought Police. Now, Phil Proctor heckled him in a mock Deutsch accent. Come clean, Herr Riefenbissen. You've been brainwashed. And then... In a quick switch to a close approximation of Peter Sellers' Bombay dialect, goodness gracious me, the aliens were only looking for his turd eye. That is why he looks flushed. <laughs> and George took it all very well. He did not, however, win the election. Well, here's George now with his famous screen test back in the 1980s when he was a guest on Radio Movies. Just follow along in your printed script. Oh, a really exciting moment in Dark Savage. An explosion and a stone ceiling falling in and all on echo. An exciting moment, but one not half so exciting as this opportunity. Uh, Those of you out there who have gotten the Radio Movies conversion kit have copies of a do-it-yourself radio script in which you and I will co-star. I have my copy right here. Now you get yours. Now remember, keep your thumb next to your line and you can't get lost. Uh, If you're smart, you'll be recording this co-starring experience. And if you do, well, send me a copy. All right, are you ready? 
After the phone rings, I'll do that for you. Then I have the first line, and we alternate from there. Stand by now for Radio Movies Screen Test. Good evening. This is the Angst Hotel. Indeed I do. It's a lovely one on the second floor, with a view of the view. I've been living there since I retired. Oh, yes, of course. It's a lovely basement suite with a dog. Nor do I. That's why I keep it in the basement. It does when the upstairs tenant is bathing, yes. Comes right through the floor. Naturally. The Edgar Allan Poe wing is entirely empty. We could wall you up. In the Amontillado Annex. Very private. Oh, right, right. Uh, tell me, do you like sports? How very fortunate. Uh, we have an Olympic-sized pool. Well, 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 we have an Olympic-sized tennis court as well. It's right there in the swimming pool. But there's nowhere else to stay anywhere near here, so you'd be missing the festival. When you get here, the natives need a stranger to initiate into their secret ritual society. Nothing to it. Unless, of course, the volcano spirits need appeasing. But that's not likely. Our last guest seems to have done the trick for this year. <laughs> Superb! Our Canadian chef does surprising things with bananas. And our menu is printed in three languages. Well, I don't know. I, I can't read any of them. I, I simply order the specialty of the day. Uh, today it's dog. Yes, but as I told you, I don't like dogs, so I'll just order a pizza. I'll probably order it to hold the anchovies. I'll probably order it out of my sight. I really hate a pizza that won't take orders. You're very welcome. Uh, do send me your name, and for being such a good sport, I'll send you a free gift. Uh, goodbye. Oh, thank you very, very much. You were terrific. And now, uh, remember, do call us, because we don't know where to call you. Now, back to Doc and Rennie, and the squeal of Habeas the Pig in the Temple of the Thousand-Headed Man.
Just two weeks after Illinois Governor Pat Quinn chopped $1.4 billion from the budget, the cash-strapped state of Illinois is turning to the debt markets to get through the fiscal year. This is insane. 
Uh, it plans to raise $900 million through Build America bonds to fund the first capital program in more than a decade. The money will be used to improve roads, bridges, and schools. Why haven't they been able to do that for the last 10 years? I don't have an answer for that question. I wonder if the governor does. And this debt issuance is only the beginning. The state plans to raise $1.3 billion in short-term notes next week and $1.4 billion in debt related to tobacco settlement funds in November. If it weren't for the fact that the tobacco companies have been killing Americans for five decades and finally got caught and have to pay, there wouldn't be any money to do anything in any state. And the state plans to turn to the debt markets to fund $3.7 billion in pension obligations in December. If the state legislature approves, they probably will, because how else are they going to get their salary checks and their pension checks? The state already sold $2.4 billion in pension notes in January. The Prairie State is in the midst of correcting years of overspending that has left the state in deep financial trouble. It could have uh, been as much as $6 billion in unpaid bills so far that have left schools, social service agencies, and vendors waiting months to be paid, according to State Controller Daniel Hines. Oh, my golly. We're leveraging our future, and that's not the correct approach, but it was uh, what was chosen out of a lot of bad options, Hines told uh, CNN Money. Uh, The state intends to issue Build America bonds because it's a Recovery Act program that has proven very popular among states and municipalities. The bonds are taxable, but the federal government subsidizes 35% of the interest payments. Ah, good old state socialism. Illinois' actions have not sat well with the rating agencies. Both Moody's and Fitch downgraded the state in June before the $24.9 billion budget was passed. That makes it more expensive and more difficult for the state to raise money in the debt markets, just like Greece. The state has not demonstrated, said uh, uh, Fitch people, the political willingness to take action during the fiscal crisis to restructure its budget and to achieve balance. It's relied almost exclusively on borrowing to close its sizable budget gaps. You can't close a budget gap with borrowing. All you're doing is increasing the borrowing gap. Yeah, it's grease all over and it's a slippery slope. Part of the whole immigration brouhaha, in fact, early on was the Minutemen, you know, the, the, the group formed to stand by the border armed. Oh, yeah, keep those the guys. guys. Yeah. Well, their founder is a guy named Chris Simcox, and he's being hunted by a former Minuteman and bounty hunter, Stacey O'Connell, and he thinks he knows why, because O'Connell's allegedly having an affair with Simcox's wife, the same wife who accused Simcox of threatening her at gunpoint. Normally, I won't do the story, but let me tell you I, why. I, yeah, yeah. I miss my, my daughter yeah. went to um, a private school in the west side of Los Angeles, and they, uh, they had these things called pods, which is kindergarten, first, and second grade kids together. And there were oh, three or four right. of them, mm-hmm. right? And they were, it was really a lovely concept. And one of the teachers there, the most popular pod teacher, he'd been like, played some. Um, um, little league, I mean, actually a minor league baseball, and he was very involved with the kids in the sports. And I remember I did some little music CDs with him for some like dances and such. Chris Simcox, how in the world could someone so gentle and so loved turn into this madman? I, I when I heard about it, and I've known this for a while. I just don't get it. It's got to be chemical. It's got to be something that makes the man drop into this pit. 
I, you know, the the world, it, it, people just turn into weird things in, in their maybe middle years where you make a decision and it goes the wrong way in your life. Who knows? You know, there are these... <clears throat> well, you could say, you know, so-and-so was getting weirder and weirder, but this was one of those quantum drops. You know, Judith, my wife Judith, has somebody she went to high school with who is the guy who stands in front, a perfectly normal guy. He's the guy who stands in front of the White House with, you know, like words carved in his forehead proclaiming some darn thing. It's a perfectly ordinary guy in high school, yeah. So you never know how they're going to turn out, you know, they, why some people might actually get jobs. Now it's time for the dishonor roll of the heartless and stupid. Take them away, maestro. Pennsylvania Attorney General Tom Corbett, who is running for governor, said that unemployed people are purposely avoiding jobs so they can continue collecting benefits from the government. He says the jobs are there, but if we keep extending unemployment, people are going to sit there and uh, I've literally had construction companies tell me I can't get people to come back to work until they say I'll come back to work when unemployment runs out. Rand Paul, the Republican nominee for Senator of Kentucky, said that the unemployed need to stop being so picky when it comes to getting a job. He says, as bad as it sounds, ultimately we do have to sometimes accept a wage that's less than we had at our previous job in order to get back to work and allow our economy to get started again. Nobody likes that, but it may be one of the tough love things that has to happen. Senator John Kyle said that unemployment benefits don't create new jobs. In fact, if anything, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. More recently, he called unemployment benefits unnecessary evil. South Carolina Lieutenant Governor Andre Bauer compared the unemployed to stray animals, saying that unemployment insurance is a lot like helping out strays. One is facilitating the problem. If you've given an animal or a person ample food supply, he said, they will reproduce, especially ones that don't think too much further than that. And so what you've got to do is you've got to curtail that type of behavior. They, they don't know any better. Flat-out lazy people would rather sit home and do nothing than do these jobs. And finally, Representative Dean Heller, a Republican of Nevada, said that he thinks that though there should be a federal safety net, extending unemployment benefits yet again raises the question, is the government now creating hobos? It's still those long summer nights, Dave, but they're getting shorter and shorter. The beginning and then presaging the ending. And it's the ending of the show presaged by the first 50 minutes of this wonderful endeavor. But we don't leave without some of that fine, fine tang. And this is Lee Poe in his grotto garden. Oh, boy. From the grotto in the garden, I can see the fall moon shining west above the lake. From north of the river... The wild geese are leaving early, singing a song about white flowers. Drunken travelers crowd their boat. They scarcely notice the dew and mist that soak their autumn clothing. My, oh, my. 
That's Radio Free Oz for today. Made possible by the fabulous Oz team. Everybody needs a team. I got mine. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, David Osmond, my co-host. John Cumming, our consultant on things electronique. Bill Fountain does the Oz Design Group. Ooh, it is just so high-end mad ab. Tom Gedwillow means to me that the website is up and on. Chaz Glass does the figures and makes them clean. Dave Maloney gives us this fabulous sound. Bill McIntyre produces the whole schmageggy. And Scott Wilde says, keep it hot in the social media. See you when we come back again, which I think is tomorrow. Rock on. <laughs>